0: Welcome to From Duck Till Dark, Outside the Marvel Studios. An audio celebration of the films based on Marvel Comics characters released before and during the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Enough said. Face front, true believers, this is George Saroy, and welcome to... A- very special episode of from Duck Till Dark outside the Marvel Studios this is part of my contribution to the National Podcast Post Month challenge which is recording editing and posting a 10 minute or longer podcast episode every day for 30 days and we're up to the episode that i'm always 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 thrilled to do and that is talking about the 2002 film spider-man now granted i'm not like the biggest spider-man fan in the world there are like i do love the character it is someone that i grew up watching especially on spider-man and his amazing friends when i was in uh kindergarten and and so on but i am such a sucker for behind the scenes stories when it comes to movies and boy, are there a lot of behind the scenes stories for this one. Spider-Man himself was someone who had very unexpected beginnings. He was someone that uh, when, Stan Lee and, when Stan Lee and artist Steve Ditko put that together, put the character together. He was originally met with a lot of skepticism from publisher Martin Goodman over in Marvel. And so he wound up not even getting his own comic right away. He wound up being, he wanted being given the starring role on the last issue of Amazing Fantasy, which was a an anthology series that really wasn't doing very well, and so that particular issue, they were going to cancel that that line. So they decided, why not just put him in there? there it's not like anything was going to be happening with that with Amazing Fantasy after this anyway. So that winds up being the place where Spider-Man's origin story was told, and. Boy, did it sell like gangbusters to the point where almost immediately Martin Goodman gave the green light to give Spider-Man his own comic and they were off and running. Now, in the 80s, that was during a time when Marvel was really, really anxious to get their properties out there as much as possible, especially considering how they had seen the success with superman how that how that 1978 film became an instant classic how the 1981 sequel did very very well and in a lot of cases wound up eclipsing the uh, first movie in terms of quality and even though it was not a huge success in terms of quality superman 3 still made over 100 million dollars and um So yeah, Marvel was really, really anxious to get into the game. And they entrusted a lot of the rights to their characters with with producer Roger Corman. He was discussed already on this show by especially talking about the Fantastic Four and how that, so that 1994 project just did not make it to theaters. So one of those other characters that Roger had was Spider-Man. But what he wanted to do with this one, he wanted to do it right. He wanted to set him up over at Orion Pictures with Dr. Octopus as the main villain. And we're looking at a budget of about $25 million. So it seemed like things could possibly wind up going going pretty well. However, those rights wound up getting bought out from Roger Corman by Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus of Canon Films. And they were basically looking to bring in any sort of viable properties that they could in order to give themselves an extra leg up and really kind of establish themselves as as real players in Hollywood. The problem is, is that Canon Films was notorious for being for being schlockmeisters. you can say. Like they there's a whole lot of talk about them on the really great documentary, Electric Boogaloo, and they they were, especially Menachem Golan, was they were very, very anxious to get out there and make themselves known by getting as much established properties as possible. And unfortunately, Menachem Golan did not know much about the character and insisted that the story that they were going to tell was be kind, going to be kind of like a, a werewolf type of story. And they had a writer involved, I think it was uh, Leslie Stevens, and... The idea was that he was, that uh, Peter Parker was going to be the subject of an experiment that was going to turn him into a large insect and basically just be like, kind of phasing back and forth with that. They had gotten Toby Hooper on board, with the project, and then later on, Joseph Zito, who would direct Missing in Action and also Invasion USA for canon, and he was also very well known for directing Friday the 13th, the final chapter. So he was involved. Michael Dudikoff was involved, the American Ninja. He was uh, in line to play the character. And there was also, originally, the budget that they were looking at was about the same, about $25 million. Unfortunately... Around 1987, when when Canon wound up breaking down, de- reducing the budget for Superman 4 from about 35 million to about uh, just over 15 million, and they couldn't even make that much money back at the box office for a Superman sequel. Obviously, some things were definitely going awry there, so they had to reduce the budget down to seven million dollars, and Joseph Zito walked. He left the project. Albert Pion Came aboard for a while to to facilitate things, and he would later go on to direct Captain America. But he's someone who definitely is someone who is who is used to working with uh, very very small budgets, so it was a good thing that he was on board. And they also had brought in a writer by the name of Ethan Wiley. He had pitched this idea about Peter Parker slowly becoming Spider Man and finally being him at the end, and that was the means of trying to stretch things out long enough so that way they don't have to spend millions and millions of dollars on one big action sequence after another. He can just slowly work his way up into finally becoming Spider-Man for the climax. And so that was that was an idea that was being that was being explored. The whole time, Stan Lee was getting really, really upset about all the different directions that were going on. Jim Shooter, the editor-in-chief at Marvel, was also very adamant about wanting to, wanting to get them to reel things in and really kind of pay attention to the character and really create something that was faithful to that character. Eventually, when Canon Films wound up collapsing and, um, and Golan actually left Yoram Globus and started his own company, 21st Century Film Corporation, and he was able to take the rights of Spider Man with him. And then, for extra cash to really get things going, he sold the TV rights for Spider Man to Viacom. Then, he sold the home video rights to Columbia Pictures. And then, the theatrical rights to Carol Co Productions. And Carol Co, they had a real big ace up their sleeve because they were the home. ...for James Cameron. Carol was the studio responsible for Terminator 2. And then the next year they would release Basic Instinct. So they were riding a pretty good wave right there. Right at those the early 90s. And Cameron was really um, really anxious to work on Spider-Man. He had put together what they call a scriptment. So it was a combination of a script and a treatment. And he, what he had in mind was bringing in his... ...as his villains, Electro and Sandman... And it was going to be like a $50 million budget. And things were, things seemed to be kind of going into development there. The main thing that he was able to bring in, the main thing that he was able to change when it came to the character, Peter Parker, he was, it was a a faithful reintroduction to the character of Peter Parker and Spider-Man. The main thing that he did, the main little twist that he did, he made the web shooters organic. Normally it's, uh, it's, a little cartridge that's attached to his wrist that uh, with uh, a f- film that uh, that Peter made himself. But the idea that uh, that Cameron had was he made them organic, so they immediately came out of his wrists. And so that's something to remember for later on. During all of this, while Carol Co. was really kind of ramping up production, uh, Menachem Golan sued Co for trying to make the film without him and with the with all the different litigations going back and forth and cameron eventually left the project he went ahead and decided he was going to do titanic instead and he even had leonardo dicaprio in mind to play peter parker so that's that would have been a very interesting thing and it was around the Early 90s, around that same time, that was when MGM acquired the assets of 21st Century Film Corporation. So they they would eventually wind up getting all of those and all of the and most of the rights to the other Canon films. I think it was all the all the ones that Golan was able to kind of bring with him when he broke away from Yoram Globus and the rest of Canon. While all this is happening, there's another franchise that was dealing with its own issues. And this is something that goes back quite a few decades. And this franchise was James Bond. Now, the reason why I'm bringing up James Bond right now is because there is a real big element that adds to all of this mess that's going on behind the scenes. And it all centers around one guy. And it's not Ian Fleming, it's Kevin McClory. Kevin McClory was a producer and a, a screenwriter who befriended Ian Fleming during the time when the struggle to bring James Bond to the big screen wasn't really getting much traction. And so McClory and and another, and another writer, another gentleman that came in, Jack Whittingham, they wound up teaming up with Ian to put together a screenplay It was an original screenplay that was going to be like the real good springboard to get James Bond on the big screen. And it wound up being like this undersea adventure that would eventually wind up being Thunderball. And unfortunately, while they were coming up with this idea, all these different ideas, there were a lot of drinks during their meetings and everything and a lot of late nights to the point where... They when uh, when all was said and done, no one could really decide on who came up with what. And so what wound up happening was Ian Fleming in his of a very in a very not bright move on his part. He took all all those elements that they had been working on and put them all into his book. That would eventually be Thunderball. And he opened the door to get himself sued for plagiarism. And Kevin McClory had no problem doing that. And he wasn't gonna let go of Bond because he believed that with all the elements that went in there, he had just as much of a right to the character as Ian Fleming. So eventually there was a settlement where Ian was able to publish the book. However, it was Kevin McClory who would have the film rights to it. He would be the one to be credited as producer. And it was during that whole back and forth a lot of people say that that's what contributed to Ian Fleming's eventual heart attack that would kill him. And so originally, Kevin had sat on those on those rights. And once Ian Fleming died, that was when broccoli and and uh, Saltzman came aboard, and they wound up teaming up with Kevin McClory to get Thunderball on the big screen. However, as part of the deal, Kevin was, list, was credited as a sole producer and Broccoli and Saltzman were listed as executive producers. And there was nothing that they can do. That was part of the deal that was done with Ian Fleming with the courts. And so not only was Kevin McClory the sole de facto producer of this movie, which wound up being the biggest success out of all of them to date. But the deal also gave Kevin McClory the right to remake Thunderball after a period of time. And he definitely pounced on that when the time came. And that would be in the early eighties when he took his project over to Warner Brothers and coaxed Sean Connery into coming out of retirement of playing James Bond. He was still acting obviously. But uh, but he wound up bringing him back, and that became Never Say Never Again. And in addition to being able to remake that one, in, in addition to be able to remake Thunderball, he was also given the right to make sequels. And after quite a, quite a while, he was able to revisit that option. And so... It was in the mid-90s, that's when he started really ramping up his idea, working with Columbia Pictures to put together a little package deal and make a rival Bond series with Columbia Pictures, who also had the rights to Casino Royale, the first book that Ian Fleming wrote for James Bond. And it was kind of like the the one that got away for Cuppy Broccoli. So he, unfortunately, he did not live to see that movie get into a full production other than that spoof movie that was done in the 1960s, which barely had anything to do with Casino Royale. And so there was a whole lot of back and forth with that. And MGM was getting involved and in wanting to stop them from moving forward with, with, with that sequel. The sequel would eventually be known as Warhead 2000. And Kevin was able to, was working on getting Timothy Dalton to come back and be his rival Bond. But eventually things wound up falling apart there and Kevin wound up losing eventually his rights to James Bond. And so Sony was able to, Sony had those rights and they made a little settlement with MGM. And that settlement was MGM would get the rights to Bond, Casino Royale, everything under the Kevin McClory umbrella. So that way, everything would be with MGM, with Eon Productions, it would all be there. And in return, MGM, which owned the assets for 21st Century Film Corporation, would give Sony the rights to Spider-Man. And so all of that happened in March of 1999, so this has been like over a decade in the making, with all of this stuff that was going on, all the back and forths, all the amazing um, behind-the-scenes stories, and finally in 2000, that's when Sam Raimi came on board to be the director, and he had put together, he had overseen a screenplay that David Kep would write, and David Kep has had done a lot of work for himself and done very well. He had worked on the first two Jurassic Park movies. He had done a really great film called The Paper. If you haven't seen that, by all means, do. It's a really, really, uh, really really good movie. And Michael Keaton, Glenn Close, Robert Duvall, Randy Quaid, really Marissa Tomei, just a, a hell of a movie. Really funny, really, just a really good New York-y type of movie. I, I, took, it, I took to it pretty quickly. I loved it. But he had also done, back in the mid 90s he had done the shadow which i think like would could use a director's cut of its own and so but he wound up commission he wound up writing the screenplay that teamed up both the green goblin and doctor octopus and thankfully that draft really didn't go anywhere he still had the organic web shooters kept was able to keep that from the james cameron scriptment and but at the same time a, Having read that screenplay, I'm really, really glad that it didn't go anywhere because there was a lot of very corny comic book style dialogue from like the 1960s, where the Green Goblin and Doctor Octopus were not only teaming up against Spider-Man, but also turning against each other, and it was, it was it just seemed to be a bit of a mess. Thankfully, there was a they were able to break it down and and give uh, keep everything very basic. Now, with all that. With uh, to- you know Toby Maguire, Willem Dafoe coming on board, and everything else that uh, that went into that, what were my thoughts on the actual movie after all of this time and all these different behind the scenes things? I really, really enjoyed it. I was really taken by all the acting. I think the acting was superb all all across the board. Obviously, Toby Toby Maguire was was great as he was great as Peter Parker, and he was a solid Spider Man. Willem Dafoe was a perfect Green Goblin and Norman Osborne. J.K. Simmons, God bless him, the man was J. Jonah Jameson incarnate. Like it was it was amazing the way that he the, the way that he captured that character. Everyone involved was was terrific. Cliff Robertson, his Uncle Ben, I thought was great. And I, I was yeah, overall, I was really, really happy with it. Now, it wasn't perfect. There were a lot of what I like to call cringeworthy moments, uh, little 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 moments where just like the dialogue just seemed so comic booky that it just kind of like took me out of the movie happened quite a bit especially during the second half but that first hour my god that was that that's as close as you can get to comic book movie perfection and it was just done really really well the way that the the way that Peter got got bitten by the spider, by the feeling the effects, the way that he did—oh, god—it was so it was just so good. Like everything was put put together so so well. And having that with great power comes great responsibility. Moment I thought was 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 perfect, and the the way that he had to deal with Uncle Ben and dealing with the guilt that followed, I mean, it was it was all just it was all just right there. The second half, like it it did seem to kind of lag a little bit. There were some, like I said before, quite a few cringeworthy moments. Yeah, I know. Like especially there were moments like the Green Goblin and Spider Man on the rooftop. That, that scene just kind of yeah it came off as really you know less lesser than than what it should have been, and the the moment that led up to that with with Green Goblin to go and like sleep and going back to Green Goblin really quickly, one thing that really kind of you know took me out of this was the fact that early on in the movie you get to see someone using like a showing off the glider and showing off the suit. And it looked almost demonic right from the start. And I felt like they should not have done that. I felt like there should have been just like a typical, like a good glider and a a good tactile like battle armor for the suit. And after he was, after Norman Osborn took that formula and went through it and, became this insane goblin type of character it should have been he should have seen like those moments like kind of those he should have definitely seen like himself as as a goblin like looking at himself in the mirror and Modified the suit to reflect that. That's how I felt they should have done that. Overall, I thought it, I thought the whole the whole thing was really really good, very very strong. Like I said, I had a share of cringeworthy moments. There was definitely the that rah rah New York. You mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. There was too much stuff that was right on the nose, but overall, for what Sam was trying to convey, I thought was I I, I thought he definitely accomplished what he set out to do. So if you haven't watched Spider-Man 2002 in a while, I strongly recommend you do, especially considering everything that's going to be happening in December with Spider-Man No Way Home, Sony Pictures in their infinite wisdom. And this, for by saying that, I'm being serious. They're smart enough to see that they have some serious assets with the Spider-Man movies that came before the ones that are now tied in with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So definitely give Spider-Man 2002 a look. High recommendation for it. And I am just really excited for this time. And also, just to note, um, the world was ready for Spider-Man in 2002. And you could see that in the box office because out of all of the Star Wars films that came before it, and some of the ones that came after it they were they were always those Star Wars films were always the top money maker of the year that they came out except for 2002 and the reason why they came in second instead of first was because of Spider-Man and so that's big that's really big the fact that they that he was able to take on Star Wars and beat them that's that's huge so that's all I got to say about this one. Like I said, I was really, really excited to talk about this one because I am such a sucker for behind-the-scenes stories, and here we are. This one was gone a lot longer than the other ones, but I think, I hope that you've enjoyed this one, and I'm always looking forward to your feedback, so please go ahead and go to facebook.com slash fromducktilldark. If you have any suggestions or comments or anything, please feel free to email me at george at and if... I missed any of the information. If you wanted to, there's anything that, uh, that you have as a correction or anything like that, please go ahead and and feel free to let me know. A lot of credit goes to not only Wikipedia, but also to Edward Gross, the, uh, the pop culture author who wrote this great book called Spider-Man Confidential. And there's a whole section in there about bringing Spider-Man to the big screen. Uh, so definitely check that book out. I am just, like I said, I'm excited to be talking about this one. And I hope that you have enjoyed hearing me talk about this one. And so until next time, this is George Sorori saying to all of you, Ever Upward and Excelsior. I'll see you again soon.